Well, hello there. This is Brian Lanson, and you're tuned in to this episode of the Altitude Sessions podcast, coming to you from our studio here in Jacksonville, Wyoming. Really glad you stopped by. Boy, I don't know how to describe this show other than we're going to get into a lot of good stuff around neurotics or creative. We're going to talk a lot more about kind of this retail uprising that's going on in healthcare and why that matters to you, and just jump into it from there. Glad you stopped by. Glad you're here. Got a heck of a show for you. Thanks. All right. Well, I tell you what, I mean, this this is a fun one. You know, this is the Labor Day weekend podcast. So wherever you may be going for this long weekend, hope that you have a good time with a loved one or family or friends. Go do something fun, relax. Hopefully get away from work a bit and catch up on this one a couple of days from now. But happy Labor Day. And again, truly get away, relax, and enjoy some time. Because it's been one hell of a crazy year, right? Well, we're glad to be here and glad to be putting out this podcast episode uh, right before the holiday. And you know, I think we've got an interesting show here for you. I mean, it's there. There was, you know, just to kick it off, there was this article this that that kind of jumped out at me. It was in a magazine that Time Magazine actually put out, and it was. At the Target, that's, uh, you know, we as a family about a week ago went and spent some time in Idaho and were able to get back to civilization because there are certain aspects of living in Jackson where most people will take it for, for granted. But things like getting to a Target, you know, the closest Target that we have here is at Idaho Falls, and that's two hours away. So, you know, it's nice to wrap in some business purpose and also be able to bring the family with and allow them to experience some of the modern conveniences in life. So long story short, standing in line at Target, there was this special edition that was a, that was brought to us by time. And, you know, the title really, you know, jumped out at me. It's the science of creativity. So I said, what the heck? And ended up buying the, the magazine and digging into all the various aspects of creativity, you know, just to push the envelope here a little bit. And, you know, one of the articles in this special edition by Time was, it was entitled, Are Neurotics More Creative? And it was an article written by David Burb, I think Baraby is his name. And, yeah, it really, it just, it just kind of grabbed me. Because, you know, how many times in your organizations do you, have that anxious, relatively grumpy, kind of down on their, I wouldn't say down on their luck, but just just kind of they feel like they're a little bit mad, a little bit more withdrawn, a little bit more worried about what everybody thinks of them, certainly very anxious and at times awkward in social situations type folks that work inside your organization that may be sitting in a conference room bundled up and, and quiet and maybe absorbing everything and taking it all in. You know, what if you shifted that question to from, boy, what's what's driving this person and their anxiousness and even, you know, dare I say, their neurosis and ask the question, is this perhaps one of the more creative people in the room? And what are we doing to tap that creativity? And it jumped out to me because, you know, over the life cycle of our company, you know, we've had capabilities through this organization that even include things like, our uh, analytics function and 
you know, that, that group was, you know, was, was a group of folks that really found ways to express their creativity through numbers. And they did incredibly beautiful work and found some linkages that saved health plans millions upon millions of dollars because they saw something in numbers that a lot of other people overlooked. And, you know, the personality types, they were a little more anxious, a little more withdrawn, a little bit more um, you know, definitely to themselves. But really good at expressing their creativity in other ways. So there is this roaring academic debate that's going on right now that, that that's really kind of interesting. There, there is a, a paper that was published by Adam Perkins from King's College in London that drove this particular article. And in the paper, there is a, a question about is there some correlation or linkage to folks that are more neurotic to creativity? Does that neurosis drive their creativity? And oh my gosh, you know, through the several pages that this article laid out both sides, there's a hell of a roaring argument on this particular topic. Say, so are they really related or not? Is this just kind of the stereotyping, the frustrated life is so hard, creative that folks have read about, you know, in, in, the, in this, the bygones of history. I think it's an interesting, I really think it's, it, it's, it's the type of article, it's a type of question that even in my, my world, just to use it over, it kind of draws creativity. You know, you go back and you look at what is a neurotic, what is neurosis, you know, the definition is someone's tense, sensitive, obsessive, and anxious. And the academic research and the way that it, you know, in the behavioral health space and others it's been approached has been, if you're neurotic, let's find ways to get these folks out of the doldrums and look up at this guy and say, it's a sunny, sunny, clear, blue day. Oh my gosh, what the hell's been the matter with me up until this point? Thank God I've reached that moment. And yet when you look at the very first paragraph of this, this article, it kind of draws you in with a name that we all know, or at least I, I think we should know. It starts off and it just says, if you'd wanted to meet Charles Darwin, after he published on the origin of species in 1859, you would not have found him basking in satisfaction over a job well done. In fact, you probably would not have found him at all. Stressed by social life, he had a mirror installed so he could see people approaching him in time to hide from them. Darwin just wasn't a sunny man. On an ordinary day, a couple of years after his book had appeared and revolutionized humanity's understanding of the world, he wrote a friend, quote, I am very poorly today and very stupid and hate everybody and everything. One lives only to make blunders, end quote. All right, Brian, you've really drawn us in. This is, this is a really sunny, uplifting, pre-holiday discussion. <laughs> it gets better, I promise. But just the thinking is sometimes it's to stop and think. Amongst us, are these, are, do we have these people on our teams or in our organizations that may not be the sunniest people? 
what they may hold the answer to a problem that you're trying to solve. Because as you dig into this a little bit more, what the hypothesis of this is that Adam Perkins put together was, in effect, these folks that are neurotic, they, they have the ability to daydream and to ruminate and to dwell on hypotheticals and worst-case scenarios, and they go all the way to the worst-case scenario to really define the root cause of the problem. And once that problem has been defined, it, it creates a basis for which you can actually solve for it. And by solving for it, often requires creativity. So as these people are constantly worried about social interaction and the anxiousness that comes from it and what people think of them and other things, it also may also bring together a unique skill set to where they can identify a problem at its root level and then really think about it differently, creatively. Now, the other side of this argument is most people that are neurotic, they're, they're more worried about an awkward conversation that may have happened in line trying to get coffee earlier in the morning, and they've been thinking all about that and replaying it over and over and over again to the point where they don't have enough mental energy left to be thinking about solving the world's problems or your company's problems. And that's, that's the counter-argument to this, of which the academics are debating. So there is this, this other side to it that says, well, come on, these guys are so worried and in the moment thinking about the little things that are driving their anxiousness that they're not going to get to the bigger issues. Where this argument kind of meets in the middle, though, and where I think they kind of conclude at the end of this, is that perhaps there are a group of people that need to be identified, that have a creative streak in them, and perhaps that streak already exists with or without the neurosis, but they have this creative streak in them, and they're exceptional at thinking bigger and and thinking creatively and uniquely because it is that time spent ruminating on a problem that helps them escape the day in and day out anxiety that they live with. And that's a real interesting way to maybe pull it all together. It's like perhaps neither side of this debate's right or wrong. They're both part right and part wrong. And what it ends up with is that there's just a select group of people that have the ability to escape their neurosis by working creatively and thinking creatively about a problem. So I think it's kind of cool. And I just, I bring that up because it grabbed my attention and I know there are people inside your company. And I know that I've worked with people in my world where taking the time to identify the special talents that exist within your organization may not always be the most common places where people look. It may be the most awkward social person in the room or on the team. It may be the person that doesn't have the sunniest attitude. It may be the person that is quiet. It may be the person that, that's anxious and dresses differently than everybody else. But within that, there may be this hidden gem, this genius that as a leader, if you can identify it, you can unlock something that will take your team to the next level. 
So I, like I said, I just thought that was a really cool and different article. And it was just a moment of serendipity standing in line at Target, which doesn't happen very often given where we live. So I was like, well, hell yeah, I'll pick this thing up and read it. And I, I thought it was, was creative. And it's something that I don't normally think about. And I just figured it would make sense to to share it with this group and with this this audience of listeners. So thanks for going down that path with me a little bit. So on to what's going on in the rapidly expanding world of healthcare. My gosh. You know, if you extend beyond the boundaries lately, you know, the organizations like Peloton just filed their IPO, their their documents leading up to the IPO. And, you know, folks have dug into all of that. And bottom line, the company's growing, top line revenue, but still losing money. You know, it's kind of the typical, feels like the typical growth stage company these days. Investor dollars, grow, grow, grow the market, get more efficient with scale and other things and be able to make up for the losses to, to the extent in the long run, the scale will outpace where you are today and will allow you to finally get to the point where the company is break even or profitable at some point down the line. That is what it is. I think what's more interesting is just when you look at some of the retail actors that are building capabilities to what I still believe will be to attack this consumer moment that's building in healthcare, whether that's delivered through unique HSA programs, through the employer funding mechanism or individual marketer, the overarching expansion of Medicare that may happen at some point down the line. It just feels like there are retailers out there, no matter where you look, that are positioning themselves for this world of the heightened consumer. There are times when you think about it, even in my own, let's call it neurotic brain, which you guys push back on all the time. There are times when you might might even start to think that perhaps fixing, fixing all of this through the the group model is, you know, that's that's not the line of thinking that's going to get it done in the long run because of this this drive for this consumer moment. But, you know, I've been asked to debate that a hundred times and there are people that have their positions and we certainly support those positions as well. And like to work with those individuals and in figuring out the here and now with the way the markets are set up. And we do that all day, every day, and still look at the employer market, not necessarily as the, the fix to healthcare, but certainly as one of the greatest R&D labs that can be invested in to find solutions that work and to discard those that don't just because there's so many different employer laboratories that you can play in. And that is something that is unique about our system. We have the ability to experiment and figure out what's right and wrong through the these employers all day long. And, you know, we're seeing that more and more in, in the Medicare space as well, which I'll talk about here in a bit. But getting back to things like Peloton and going back to, you know, Amazon's purchase of PillPack and others, you know, as you set up certain strategies, those feel like those are strategies attacking the upper end of the income market. I don't think you'll find people in middle America or lower and probably even the lower end of America that from an income perspective or income classification, I don't think you're going to find a lot of those folks probably buying a, you know, $2,000 bike, you know, stationary bike. And then the monthly subscription programs and other things that come with it on top of that, or if we, I think it's like a $4,000 treadmill, that's priced to attack 
the upper end of the market. I think you can say the same thing about if Amazon decides to use Whole Foods to make a bigger splash in healthcare and what they're doing with PillPack and some of the other things, you know, I think PillPack could extend to multiple income classifications, but in building models around communities through Whole Foods, if they decide to do it, that's a little bit more of an upper end play where there's a little bit more discretionary income and health-minded, health-conscious folks that are looking to discontinue to grow the depth of loyalty in that brand and extend from that brand's perspective the types of services they offer to a clientele that's already already pretty loyal and pretty there. Going again where people aren't always looking at where market opportunities, obviously there, there are more middle-income Americans and lower-income Americans than there are folks that, that you know, sit on the upper end of the classification. So when you look at just general market opportunity, I'm always fascinated with the folks that are trying to solve for the down market income folks. And, you know, you, if you track some things, before we get into the punchline on this, this topic today, if you track some things, there, there are companies out there like Planet Fitness that I, I think are pretty darn creative. You know, they have pioneered the, $10 a month health club subscription. I think it even comes with free pizza if I, if I remember correctly, but they pioneered that. And they are, I think even now, just the way they think and the way they're attacking the problem for this larger audience set, they're, they're looking to expand in all these retail stores that are now defunct under brands like Sears and Toys R Us. And they're looking to take that space on the cheap and go in and continue to offer services in the way they look at it from an investor perspective, offer services that allow them to chase the 80% of Americans today that don't go to the gym. We get some real interesting stuff coming up at our, our formulate meeting here in Jacksonville, our marquee group that, that kind of ends the, the strategy group calendar for, for 20 19 and that same thing there there are companies out there now that are developing subscription models and other things that attack in in this case there's a company out there is attacking the 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 folks that that are uninsured in the dental space and that number's big you know by some estimates it's as much as 100 million people i love ideas like that i know investors love ideas like that because you're attacking that the bottom end of the funnel where it's big and the opportunity is big. So you look at what's going on with, with these Planet Fitness gyms and where they're opening up. I mean, I think they've got, it's like 1,800 gyms now and they're continuing to grow. I mean, they have seen from a revenue growth perspective, a 400% growth in the last four years because they're chasing that market, that market again of 80% of Americans that, aren't going to the gym right now. So, you know, to juxtapose things, Whole Foods and Amazon, they decide to do something, it's going to be on the top of the market. Let's call it the top 20% of the market. The Planet Fitnesses and others are attacking that 80% of the market. So where is this all leading? So the news that just broke, and it's uh, I think it was broke by CNBC, is that 
our good friends at Walmart in Arkansas have made a strategic decision to move into offering standalone health clinics. And the first one is being stood at right now in Georgia. And it's going to be called Walmart Health as a solution. And inside, it's primary care, but it's primary care with dental vision. It's got hearing screenings. It's got the ability to do behavioral health counseling sessions. This is that that play, like Planet Fitness, potentially, to go after the wider end of the funnel where the established relationships and brand already exist with lower and middle income Americans that are a significant customer under the Walmart brand. So I just, I find it fascinating how these things are coming out and Walmart looking to grow its piece of the pie. You know, they reorganized the organization, I believe a few months ago to where the healthcare unit in, in the U S is now under the head of the U S store. So I think it was somewhat inevitable at some point you're going to see this continued push into merging retail and health. They're not the only ones doing it. And you've already seen the, the play around Aetna and CVS and how that's all pushing together. You've got the virtual plays again with the Amazons hanging out there and what they're going to do. All this is coalescing in some way where you're seeing these integrations between retailers, people that know customers intimately at, at a core level with lots of information maybe missing some of the healthcare-related information that's out there. I'll take a drink here again, as usual. So cheers again, Labor Day weekend. Oh, yeah. Ready to get this weekend started. How about you? But the other, the other thing is just where are the established players and how are they going to react to some of this? I think about that quite a bit. And, you know, we, in our advisory sessions, we talk about that quite a bit as well. But it it, it is a moment in time where you really can sense it and feel it. It's a moment where I think competitors, as you start to look forward, you know, do the Blues consider Cigna and United Health Group and Aetna as competitors and vice versa? Or is that competitive picture starting to morph and then the, the future competitors are these consumer brands, these consumer giants that want a bigger piece of the healthcare pie. You know, on the Walmart side, right now, the health and wellness division as a whole is about 9% of their revenue. It's $36 billion out of $332 billion in the U.S., based on some of the numbers that have been tracked there. They want to grow that. They want to get into the, into the bigger pieces of the healthcare pie. And to do that, this clinic strategy may be one of those things. Pharmacy, obviously, and how that all integrates together and continues to drive that, and more and more and more and more and more. And then the integrations of unique benefit structures and approaches and referral patterns and other things that probably refer people into the store and other things. And I know that's always been some thinking there, but I find it really fascinating that they've done a standalone clinic here because the, you know, the counter argument to putting all of these services inside of a big retail box has always been, you know, I've heard it a hundred times, you know, from varying healthcare executives from other companies that the last thing you want is for someone to come in and cough and sneeze and, 
bull snot, and all sorts of stuff all over the groceries. So separating those out is, I think, an interesting insight. We'll see where it goes. Very early days, but it's interesting news. It just broke. It kind of leads to the question and something that we've been talking about for a bit. If we're going to have this community renaissance from the ground up and building stuff for the community, is the future of insurance is one of the questions worth answering and kind of running down and seeing if it has any merit or not. Is insurance from the future, is it going to be built from something like a centered, anchored grocery store chain up? And are there partnerships that come out of those things where the ability to attack food deserts and the ability to to attack, you know, buzzwords like social determinants of health and other things could be centered out of the grocery store and its outreach to deliver healthy foods. Now that is also something that would require a business model change for some of these grocery stores that have higher margin, shittier food that people buy prepackaged and all sorts of other things. But can they get away from that? Is, is this maybe even the, the whole foods broader market play where they say, Hey, we are figuring out through Amazon's distribution and supply chain models that we can take what's typically healthier, more expensive food and push that down to larger portions of the population and stay tuned because here it's coming. Maybe it's certainly things to look at, but I just, as a a higher level question, just thinking through what is that new anchor? You know, the anchor for the last, you know, 80 years or so has been this relationship between risk and hospitals and physicians. Does that change going forward to a relationship between a community and its center, its stapled centers inside that community, whether it be grocery stores, fitness centers, other things that all come together in an aggregated way, and they create things that that benefit the community? And, you know, does it allow through, you know, because we work under the employer model construct on so much of this, do we see in the future... Even even the large institutions, hospitals, and these retail organizations coming together in communities and attacking opportunities to where either the national retailer or a local retailer opens up their health plan and other things in exchange for more information on or being able to combine information on loyalty cards and purchases of things happening in the store and all those things, and it all comes together in this this data heaven, if you will, that allows us to understand where the underlying risks are in our communities and very specific to our community. And then we can start to develop the health services at a cost that sits in line with what the community can afford. And does that constitute the grounds for building something unique and different for healthcare from the ground up? I don't know the answer to that, but just watching all this activity, it's really Interesting to watch. And I can certainly say that I still talk about it a lot, that I think that this age of the consumer is really coming. I think it's, it's, you know, a lot of people say it's, oh gosh, it's been here for a while, but no, I mean, I think it's really coming. And I think there's all this convergence that's starting to happen where you even see companies like Goldman Sachs saying the next tentacle on their, their will to drive revenue growth for them is to be a better consumer oriented company. And where are they doing that? Well, the first foray with that is a 
is the, is the launch in partnership with Apple, this Apple card. So there's, there's all this stuff that's just going on, and it's just, it's, it's really, really, really fascinating to watch. So the last thing just is part of the, the spirit of what I've talked about in the past, the growth mindset, which if you have time, we'll see if we can link it, but I won't talk about it much, but there was a really fascinating report that talks about growth mindset teaching in the education setting, uh, particularly when you look across all classes of lower income and higher income, but particularly lower income, teaching kids to not be in the doldrums and have bigger growth mindsets and their ability to take on the world and other things and setting and instilling that belief in them actually has incredibly good outcomes on improving test scores in those environments. So really interesting stuff that's coming out of just even the psychology of that. And it's taught here in Jackson. There's a growth mindset approach to the the teaching that goes on here. But it's just, it's really, really interesting to see how that's all playing out. And going sometimes where people aren't thinking is really the best, in my opinion, best use of innovation and creative energy that you can do. And I'll leave you with one more thing. On the Medicare side of the business, just recently the Bipartisan Policy Center did a study that showed for the most frail, sickest part of the population in Medicare that you could actually save in Medicare $1.57 for every dollar spent delivering healthy meals to those, those folks. Now, they've, they've said very clearly the math doesn't work if you try to deliver healthy meals to everybody. It's a Medicare eligible. It's, it's on some type of Medicare plan. But if you target the sickest, their study found that for the $101 million spent in delivering healthy meals to them, it was $158 million in hospital bills that didn't occur because you avoided return trips to the hospital for certain need services, so on and so forth. So, I mean, just, there's just so much interesting stuff going on. You kind of pull it all back. You know, the, you've got these stratifications that are potentially these lines that are potentially forming you know, Peloton and, and health and fitness, a little bit more upmarket. You think you can probably say considerably more upmarket in who they're going after. You've got Whole Foods and Amazon probably more upmarket, maybe down the middle a little bit. And then you've got Walmart with, these, with this clinic strategy, trying to bring accessible primary care and behavioral health services and such to the masses, which really caters more to their middle market down crowds. You've got these program saying, gosh, if we can just get things like, like food to the right folks at the right time, that we could, you know, save, you know, $1.57 for every dollar invested in the system. It's, we're just in this, this incredible period, I think, of starting to think about the broader picture, starting to think about the impact on the community and healthcare, starting to think about the whole person, starting to think about the consumer that if you don't have strategies in flight and if you're not thinking about integrations and partnerships and honestly not trying to take on all this all yourself, it's probably time to do that. So I'm going to leave you with that. Happy Labor Day again. Enjoy your time away. Enjoy this long weekend. And we will re-engage with you in a couple of weeks. So one last thing, we have sold out formulator in Jackson Hole. So if you are 
if you have a, a partnership invite or something from us, you know, those are still valid, you know, come back to us and we'll work through the final logistical phases of that. But all the general invites to formulate that's closed out. The group is, is sold out. No more room at the end at the four seasons this year. Uh, the group itself actually ended up about 15% larger than the 2018 edition. So we've seen some nice growth and it's a, it's a more diverse group and it's thought and approach this year. And even the topic matter this year is a little bit more interesting on the healthcare front. So we continue to try to elevate that experience every year. And I feel like this year we're in a pretty good spot. So I appreciate all the support that this community's brought to that group and to the other things that we do here at M4 Innovation. So on that, I'm very thankful for you guys. Thankful that you spent some time with us today. Thankful that you are able to listen to some of this discussions all the way from the ramblings of neurosis and being more creative as a neurotic, all the way to growth mindset in schools to what we're trying to do to unpack what's going on in the retail-centric portions of healthcare. So thanks for hanging with us, and we'll be back with you here in a couple of weeks.